0: welcome to florida that is the voice of best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter craig Pittman. my name is chad scott today we've got a special episode for you with another best-selling author a man who really needs no introduction carl Hyacin. that will come up later on in today's show but first craig you've got good news about your writing career to share
1: Yes, uh, the University Press of Florida has officially accepted my manuscript for my next book, which is called The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. It's a, a collection of my various columns and stories that have run over the past you know, 30 years of, of writing about what I call the most interesting state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are stories in there about python hunters and alligator wrestlers and rodeo cowboys and runaway monkeys and uh, t- toilet iguanas. You know the uh, usual stuff. Yeah,
0: usual stuff. That's <laughs> going to come out next summer,
1: July twenty twenty one. Yeah,
0: fantastic. Mm-hmm. So between now and then, everyone can catch up on all of Craig's previous books: Paving Paradise, Cattail, Oh uh, Florida. You name it. You can find all of those at craigpitman.com dot com or go ahead directly on Amazon dot com. We have enjoyed starting this Florida centric podcast. We're Oh, 10, 11, 12 episodes in now we began in June. Another Florida podcast I want to shout out for the work it has done recently is Wait Five Minutes and that is the oh, title, great. title of the podcast. Yeah. You can search for that wherever you find this podcast. Craig's been a guest there before the season finale this year was about the Cross Florida Canal, something I had heard about before, but not in this sort of detail. The storytelling is fantastic. You show up for one of these predictable ecological devastation Florida stories, and you, you definitely get that. But along the way, you'll meet Marjorie Harris Carr. It, it talks a lot about um, Rainbow Springs and the Ocklawaha River and Kirkpatrick Dam and the Rodman Reservoir, which we've discussed on this podcast before. But surprisingly, tied into all of this, there is an incredible, sad, and familiar story of Santos, Florida, a town, a thriving black community in Florida, that was wiped off the map essentially for the Cross Florida Canal. The government came in, dispossessed all of these uh, black homeowners to build the Cross Florida Canal. Of course, which would never end up being built,
1: right? and right. It's sort of like the TVA, but without <laughs> without the successful energy uh, production.
0: Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It, it is a remarkable story of structural racism on behalf of the u.s government there is a hero in marjorie harris Carr. there is a villain in george kirkpatrick uh something that everyone who is is interested in florida and and lives in florida should learn more about and know more about wait five minutes is the name of the podcast have you ever walked on that the, the cross floor the marjorie harris car greenway which cuts across florida as a, as a walking biking path
1: just a little bit, and I've been to I've been to the dam several times, and, and what's really interesting is to go there during what they call a drawdown because they have to, periodically, they have to mm-hmm. release a lot of the water from the reservoir in order to clean it out because it accumulates all kinds of, not to be too blunt about it, but all kinds of crap, yeah. you know, uh, uh, exotic aquatic plants and so forth, and whenever they do that, you can see what was there before the dam existed. You can see all of this, this vast forest of stumps. Yeah. That were part of the Ocala National Forest, seventy five
0: hundred acres.
1: Yeah. yeah, that were drowned. Well, first they ran this crusher crawler over them to, to basically to cut down the trees by smashing them mm-hmm. uh, with, with just the sheer weight of it, and then and then they they drowned them. And it's supposed to be good for bass, but you know. The river was pretty good fishing before that. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, environmental fight in Florida, and in a a way, it's still going on because the dam is still there. People would love to tear it down, Mm -hmm. and governors going all the way back to Lawton Charles and Jeb Bush. Mm said, we we are determined to tear this damn down, and they never could because they couldn't get the funding from the legislature to do it.
0: And it it goes back, well, the whole thing dates back to FDR and a a post-depression era attempt to uh, create create jobs, right, building this enormous, you know, public works, quote-unquote, project, but it involves LBJ. Nixon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a, an extraordinary piece of Florida history, not just Florida environmental yep. history.
1: There's 30... a book about it called, with a great title, Ditch of Dreams.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Ditch of Dreams is is more reading you can do. Florida Defenders of the Environment is the grassroots nonprofit Marjorie Harris Carr started largely to fight the uh, Rodman Reservoir, Kirkpatrick Dam. They are still in operation and, and fighting to uh, remove that dam and restore the area to a more natural state so you can learn more about them online as well also recently craig got a uh, nice note from the folks at the moat marine laboratory down in your neck of the woods we mentioned them in episode seven about a uh, wildlife rehab and they have actually uh, wanted to share some exciting news with us about coral reef restoration and this is a uh, uh, as we were talking before the episode, this is kind of more of a, a visual deal than an, an audio deal, but for the first time in Florida or Caribbean waters, uh, restored massive corals were observed spawning, and this is uh, in large thanks to Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium's innovative efforts to restore Florida's coral reef. So you can visit moat.org, I believe, is the website right. for the Moat Marine Laboratory and there.
1: If you're into Coral sex. You should go check it out.
0: Absolutely. They are doing uh, (laughs) great work there to help bring back Florida's coral reefs, which has been uh, damaged so greatly by acidic waters and bleaching and climate change and habitat destruction. And the the list goes on and on and on and on. But there is uh, real good news there to share from the folks at the Moat Marine Laboratory. Carl Hyacin is a native Floridian. He still lives here, a University of Florida graduate who has written numerous best-selling novels. He has written nonfiction books. He continues to write a regular column for the Miami Herald. His latest book, Squeeze Me, a novel, captures the Trump era with Carl's inimitable savage humor and wonderful eccentric characters. Book list called Squeeze Me, a quote, rampagingly funny satire, unquote. You can find Carl Hyacin online at Carl Hyacin, H I A A S E N dot com. He's on Twitter at Carl underscore Hyacin and Facebook at Carl Hyacin.
1: Carl, first of all, congratulations on the new book. Looks like everybody loves it, of course, uh, except possibly the uh, model for Mastodon. Yeah, I'm not sure when the last time he's read a book. is too busy tweeting for that. He does offer book reviews occasionally, so, you know, you, you may have a shot of him, uh, you <laughs> know. It would make my day. You actually encountered him once at Mar-a-Lago, didn't you? I did. I, well, I've, I've met him twice. You know, the president in Squeeze Me, it's, of course, totally It just happens to, to like <laughs> like junk food and, and have a, you know, a vacation mansion in Palm Beach. Um, it's just coincidental. But, yeah, I've met Trump twice. First time was at the film premiere of um, Strip Tease in New York, which was back in God, I want to say crazy, maybe '96 or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had, you know, they was the the movie premiered at the Zigfield, and then they had a, uh, and I felt, you know, I mean, of course, Florida boy, I was completely out of place anyway. But then, then they had some after party at the Rainbow Room at Rockefeller Plaza, and and you, you you went up, you know, and the cast of the movie was there, and you know, Burt Reynolds, more Moore, all the big shots. And then they had a receiving line of celebrities, random celebrities that they used to just drag in for parties that had nothing to do with the film or the book or anything else. And standing in line was was Donald Trump, and right next to him, or like two two people down, was Meatloaf. And I was I, I was far more excited about meeting Meatloaf. For than sure. That. <laughs> For sure. um, and then I met him just maybe, I don't know, I want to say nine or ten years ago, I was actually at a charity function in, in, at Mar-a-Lago, and one of the few times I've ever been invited to, to Palm Beach for anything. And that will decrease after, please <laughs> me. But anyway, and it was a charity function, and uh, he he was there, he was looking around, and again, it had nothing to do with the cause, or the you know, the event itself. Uh, he was just hovering. And uh, and so I, I met him. He was uh, chatting up my uh, my my wife at the time. Yeah. I had to go on stage and do some, you know, introduce somebody, do something. When I came down there, there he was, and I, and I, he has no, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't remember he meets thousands of people, but I mean, it, he was hard to forget because the the, the hair was uh, formidable even back then. I mean, you couldn't help but stare at it. It was just uh, <laughs> some sort of uh, textile masterpiece. When you were growing up in Florida, did you ever picture yourself someday in a setting like that? Uh, hell no. No, <laughs> no, no. I still don't. I still don't picture myself. I would much rather be in the Everglades with the, you know, with the critters out there. I, you know, I just, it's best if I don't. <laughs> I mean, just leave it at that. It's, it's better if I'm not there. Where did you grow up? Uh, of, I grew up in uh, in a town called Plantation, which is in West Broward. And uh, and I, it was at that time, it was, it was very rural. I mean, uh, it was just, all of that was getting just to be developed. So we were right on the edge of the swamp. I mean, you, ever, you know, you had regular sort of wetlands from the Everglades, and you had pasture land, and... and I mean, there was nothing, there was not a mall, there was not a, Broward Boulevard was two lanes, Sunrise Boulevard was two lanes, all of the big thoroughfares, and, and so we just rode our bikes after school went out, and, you know, and, and fishing, and snake hunting, and all that kind of stuff, I would not have traded that childhood for, for anything, now it's, you know, heartbreaking to go down there, and it's all, all that's under concrete, everything. All the way to the levee, out of the conservation areas, that uh, obviously is the source of some of the anger uh, in the novel. And I think, I think, I think most most people who write satire, and this going back to, to the beginning, I mean, I think you're it's supposed to be funny, but most people are writing out of a sense of injustice or, or anger, or I mean, that's the whole point. Satire's got mm-hmm. a, a barb to it.
0: As someone who yeah. obviously uh, loves nature, grew up with it, uh, Craig and I share uh, similar beliefs, uh, conservation, ethic. Are you generally optimistic or pessimistic about where the state, and South Florida in particular, is headed in that regard?
1: I'm a pessimist by nature with a Norwegian background. We just walk around with it, a pall of the gloom over it most of the time. <laughs> You know, I think the movement is strong, and it's ironic that, I mean, the more people who move to Florida and who, uh, for whatever reason, they've moved here, the, the, the bigger and the stronger the movement gets because uh, uh, they they value it more. I mean, there's 22 million people living in this state now, and I was born... Uh, I think there was about five million. So that's that. Mm-hmm. The, the size of this place is quadrupled just in my lifetime, and I'm not that old. But I mean, the, but the idea of of any place growing that fast is, you know, brutal on uh, for environmental issues, for water quality issues, for air quality issues, all these things. And uh, the the one thing that you saw, for instance, you know, with the the green the green blue algae blooms that have been happening on the when they when they emptied Lake Okeechobee, you know, for mm-hmm. um. When the water levels get too high, and all that all that runs out the Hatchie and Lucie Waterway, and you see massive algae blooms, and then on the west coast you're seeing these horrible fish kills, these red tides, and people it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican or whatever you think you are, people are horrified and they're mobilized and they're angry, and it's killing business and it's uh, killing tourism in a lot of these places when these things happen, as they have. And from the air, it's a ghastly thing to see this giant plume of crap. You know, of algae-filled crap going out into the ocean or the Gulf of Mexico, and so what you see in those cases, then when you know Ron DeSantis, who's very conservative Republican, running for governor, he very smart, wisely that one of the things he does is he declares war on all that, and he he pushing water water quality legislation, trying to push the Army Corps on on the releases into the, these areas. So you see it crosses party lines because it becomes something that is important to everybody, regardless of your political affiliation. You want to walk out in the backyard and look at blue-green algae as far as the eye could see. Nobody wants that. So it takes that level of crisis to move people. I guess my point is, when you see those people come together and you see that kind of stuff happen, you're you're optimistic. On the other side of the coin, it, they're still, you know, they're still going to be releasing that water. And then you're going to see, see more of this stuff, and you're going to see more red tides. But it it's causing more of an uproar now, which is good. People are starting to figure out that the environment is the economy in Florida. It's taken a long time for that, as you know. And that's the great irony is that as we fill up with people, and we're we're, we're, we're proudly, according to Rick Scott, you know, we're ahead of New York now in population. And if you look at what New York's lost and what Florida's gained, you'll see a lot of those people came here. But the more people who come here and... and this is where they're going to raise a family or this is where going to have their grandkids visit whatever they're doing they're saying hey wait a minute we don't want to. Well, why are we trashing this place i mean you're 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 getting you know you're you're getting a stronger political movement just by virtue of sheer numbers it's a great irony now let me let me go back to your writing your first 3 books were not satire they were um sort of straight ahead thrillers with uh is it Bill Montalbano am i saying his name right? yeah yeah i and I, back in 1979. I guess Bill and I started. He was an editor in the Herald and a great writer and a foreign correspondent. But he had edited some uh, projects for me. At the, you know, when I was in the newsroom in Miami and 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 uh, and Bill, he was such a gifted writer. And our styles were very different. But we we figured out sort of dueling typewriters. He would be traveling. I mean, he he opened. Harold Bureau of Beijing, for example. And so he would be overseas. He'd be writing five chapters on the book and I'd be writing five chapters at home. He'd take certain characters and it was it's very difficult to collaborate even in nonfiction. fiction uh, but to do it in fiction was tough, especially since our styles are so different. But we we're able to do this kind of they were thrillers, so they had to be structured and they had to be planned out uh, way more than I plan out my novels, obviously. And it was a great, it was a great learning experience, and uh, working with him was tremendous. But no, there was no. We the point is, was we came up with a voice that was a third voice, and uh, the, in those novels, it 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 was you know a a more homogenized style. And then when when he and I both went off to do our own novels, that's that's when I disintegrated. Uh, into you know tourist <laughs> season and the rest. Of it. Well, I was going to ask <laughs> I, you what what changed, what made you decide to to do tourist season on your own and take this completely different approach? Because that's it? the stuff, that's the stuff I'd always wanted to write. You know, when I was at in, at Emory University and then at University of Florida, I wrote a humor column, satirical column for both of those papers. And I mean, I always I I always liked writing satire, and my general outlook was sort of uh, cynical and satirical, and. And, and also just to have your own voice when you sit down and write it and, you, and when you, you're you either going to make it or break it on your own. and You don't have a partner or a collaborator there. Um, and that was important at that stage. I was, I think I was 30, oh gosh, 31, or 32 or something like that. And, uh, and I just, and I, you know, a full-time newspaper job and, and, I mean, so I would write on write the books at night, and you know, and and had nothing. I really had nothing to lose. I just wanted to have my own voice. I wanted to write about Florida. You know, Bill and I had two of the books we had done were set in Florida. One was sort of based on the cocaine wars in Miami, and the other was drug smuggling down in the Keys. Both of which I'd written about as a reporter. And then the third one was set in China, where he had spent some time, and uh, and I just wanted to train my sights on. You know, Florida's, in my mind, is for satire, was a much more target rich environment. Were there influences on your writing at that point? Were you mm-hmm. consciously or unconsciously channeling other writers you had read? No, I mean, there really wasn't anybody doing that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I read, you know, going back to in terms of what you were aiming to be if you were writing. Something with an edge, but that was supposed to be funny. I would have been Joseph Heller and uh, and, and Catch Twenty Two and some of his other other novels and some and some Salinger. I think uh, J D Salinger probably affected every writer in my generation, but nobody was really going out on that on that high wire and doing, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a satirical novel disguised as a thriller, or you know, um, I, I you know I always get a it's always amusing the hell out of me when I see that, you know, they, they ask you, well, you, or you see your book in the crime fiction section of a, because I, that's the last thing I think of myself. I mean, I, I think, yeah, there's supposed to be an element of suspense and that's obviously crime, but there are very few novels written that, that aren't about crime. Very few. Uh, even it's romantic novels. There, you, there is always can... <laughs> some sort of crime involved. And whether it's a yeah. crime of the heart or the soul or whether it's a, you know, a homicide. Uh, it, 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 I mean, that's what everybody, That, that that's the, at the heart of almost every conflict. So it's always amusing to me, you know, when, you know, they've got me sort of stacked up with the thrillers. And the other, I think the other writers had an effect on all of us. And, I mean, I don't think any anybody who's publishing right now in Florida could, would be here if it weren't for John D. McDonald. I mean, uh, the, the, those books, you know, the Travis McGee novels in particular, when I was young and I read those, that, I think that was one of the other things that made me really want to go out on my own was because um, and, and he he wrote about Florida and he wrote about places. I knew the neighbors. I knew the streets. I mean, Bahia Mar Mar, I, I, you know, I mostly. I, I mean, you know, my, my dad's office was in Fort you know, downtown Fort Waterdale. So I would you know, we'd go to the beach there and go off Los so I knew all this. The the streets, and side streets, and the, um, the Yankee Clipper, and all the you know all those old places were things that were in his novels. Were places I knew and recognized, and I, and it was very cool because he got off all these incredible riffs about this is going back into the '60s about overdevelopment and greed, and and you know the the in, you know the influx of just you know slime balls, you know the, the mercenaries that were coming to Florida to exploit it. That's what that's what John was writing about, and that was another inspirational thing. I don't think any of us. I think Randy Wayne White would tell you the same thing that we all owe a huge, huge debt to to uh, to him. He was writing from a place of real deep anger at the stuff that he saw going on, and yeah, not so not honest. really being funny about <laughs> it. You're but you take more of a. Yeah, you, but you see me, if, if, yeah yeah that's true that's true but if you read if you look at some of the dialogue between Travis McGee and Meyer you know this philosopher friend when they're when they're sitting on the house book there isn't there is some dry humor in there there there's a, yeah. there is outright anger but there's like you get it you get a sense of it no my style is different from, from McDonald's definitely and uh and again I I don't have a model for that i I just knew that from a young age when I was writing, uh, you know, even in high school and then for the college newspapers, you know, it was fun for me to make people laugh with the, if my writing made people laugh. It was a, it was a, it was a total high. Um, now, if, if you're it's one thing to do it in a 700 word newspaper column, it's another thing to do it, you know, in 100,000 word book manuscript. It's a whole it's a whole different enterprise to, to sustain it um and because it's, a, you know, it takes a long time to do and then there are days when you're writing and, and this was really true when I was working on Squeeze Me. Uh there were uh, there was a period of time where I just didn't feel very funny and I, it was very hard to write something funny, you know, because of uh, of of events going on around me and uh it you know, but you have to kind of rally and push yourself. and then yeah it becomes therapeutic. But when you're doing it, you think, "How am I going to go to the office and write one, one funny line of dialogue or one funny scene or, or you know, something?" You know, it's, it's it becomes a, a challenge uh, to do it. Um, you know, when when circumstances aren't all
0: that funny. Yeah, I think any Long creative time. endeavor takes incredible discipline. Whether you're a writer, whether you're an artist, that ability. You know, I wouldn't have to do this today, but I'm going to because it's what I do. And if I don't, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, these bad habits of not writing sort of manifest themselves like good habits of writing. And most of our audience is never going to write a novel or a newspaper column, but they may write a business proposal or certainly an email or a card from Carl Hyson to a lay writer. How do you be a better writer?
1: You know, my—I uh, <laughs> mean, there, there are no, there really are no, are no secrets, Chad. There, I mean, I, I wish there was magic, a magical formula for it. My my late brother, who he had a great, he had a great phrase for it. He said, uh, "Oh yeah," he would tell people, "Oh, it's, e- it's the formula is easy." So, ass and chair. <laughs> you know, you, it's true you, yeah. you, mm-hmm. you, you sit yourself down and you stare at that screen or the typewriter or the legal pad whatever you're writing on uh, and there are still writers that write on legal pads it's, it's extraordinary as that seems to me but but and you sit there and it's blank and you put something on it that will have some value to somebody you know write something to amuse and entertain or or enlighten somebody i mean it's a hell of a thing when you think about it but that's the only way it gets done. And the, the great thing, well, Craig, you know this one, but the, there's a reason that so many writers, so many authors come out of the world of journalism. It's because we are trained to write on deadline. We're trained to write no matter what. What else is happening? Nobody wants to hear you go in the newsroom. Nobody wants to hear you're having a bad day. You got, you know, you got stomach cramps or you're, you know, mm-hmm. your significant others. You're mad at you. Nobody gives a rat's ass, um, you got to, you're, you're, you're on deadline, sit in your chair and, and get the story done. And when, once that muscle is, your, I mean, your condition to do that yeah. for years and years and years. Uh, then when you want to tackle a book and it is a long project and there's some days when you don't feel like writing you, but you, you've got, you've been trained to do it anyway. And that's why, um, Editors in New York, book editors in New York, and agents in New York, and publishers in New York—they love working with journalists because the stuff gets done. Hmm. It'll, it gets done. You mentioned about your your brother. I, honestly, and you know, my condolences on uh, on his tragic death. I wondered if you were going to write another funny book after that. I mean, I just can't imagine I, I being able that. to do that. I mean, um, Rob was killed in. Um, the mass uh, shooting up at the Capitol Gazette newspaper in Annapolis, and it was in June of 2018. And um, I've told people this that I mean, I, I mean, it was just horrific. Uh, and I won't go into the details, but he was one of five people who were killed in the newsroom. And he was younger than I was; he was six years younger. But he was a very gifted writer and one of the funniest guys ever, and just just an incredible person. And and I just there were that was for the first time in my whole. Lifetime of writing that I could not, I couldn't write, I, and I didn't write anything for over, I think it was over two months. I don't remember. It was all just blur after he died. And I mean, and by that I mean, I knew that I, the first thing I had to get back to doing was my column. I had to because that's what he would have wanted. He never would have wanted me to quit on any of that stuff. So, so first I got back into writing a column. You know, getting the rhythm back and getting the sort of some clarity back. And then gradually you know I mean I, I had a book I wanted to write I knew you know I knew I had to do it and it, it took it took longer than that it, it took longer than that to get back into the, a novel but I knew that once I did you know like i i dedicated this book to him squeezed me on I knew that if you know if nothing else I was going to finish it for him because he would have been pissed off to think that I would just you know, I would just hang it up you know and, and not write anymore I, I think he would have Giving me a lecture on that, so you know that, it was motivational, but at the same time it was very therapeutic. Writing keeps you afloat, in, in bad times, it, it it does. Is there a storytelling tradition in in your family? I'm, I don't think I've ever read anything about you know what your dad <laughs> did for a living or anything like that. But I know growing uh, <laughs> up in the in the South, and Florida technically is part of the South, you have this you tend to have this sort of storytelling tradition in the family. Well, it, it, it there was, but it wasn't southern. You know my. Um, my grandfather was um, uh, from a family of Norwegian immigrants. They're from North Dakota, and my mom's family was from Chicago. They're uh, uh, Irish and German uh, immigrants. And so, when my grandfather moved, he was an attorney, and he was the first one in his family to go to, to go to college. And he, he got, and he moved down to Fort Lauderdale in 1922 and opened one of the first law practices down there. And my dad was an attorney also, but my grandfather was the storyteller. He loved, uh, he, he didn't even learn English um, until he was 13, 14 years old. And, and, wow. and part of his childhood was in a, in a sod house on the, on the prairies of, of North Dakota. So, But he loved books. He collected books. And so he loved, when we were grandkids, we went over on Sundays and he would always tell stories. He'd tell stories about North Dakota growing up on the farm. Uh, stuff that had happened, you know, uh, wild animal encounters, any, anything. He was just a great storyteller. And and, and every Sunday when we got there, um, we were required to have a brand new word, hmm. just one word that we had learned and we could spell and had the definition of, and would sit around him and tell him what it is and what the word meant. And I mean that was the deal. Is he loved the language so He loved. Books so much, and, and uh, even when he died, I'll tell you, I've got an old book of um, Bartlett's, you know, quotations that was in his library. And you know, when he wrote his legal briefs and everything, he would use this. And and I, w- I got to say, there's got to be 150 bookmarks in there, easy, and each one leads to a page where he's underlined in red ink a passage from a poem or a famous speech or something that uh, that moved him in some way and that affected him in some way and that you know he probably used in some Legal filing, something, uh, but it's amazing. It, I mean, I think that's where a lot. I mean, I think that's where, where Rob and I, I, I'm sure, got inspired in a way to not be attorneys to go do this <laughs> instead of going to telling stories for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. I had I had no interest in, in the law. I'm sure in a way it was it was sad for my grandfather and my dad, but I had absolutely zero interest in becoming an attorney. And now it's ironic because my oldest. My oldest son went from journalism, a career in journalism, to being an attorney in Miami. So it's <laughs> like they would be proud. <laughs> Let me ask you about a, about your nonfiction. You wrote a, you wrote a great scathing book about Disney, yeah, Team Rodent. That is it's it's short but powerful. What kind of reaction do you get? Do you still get people contacting you about that one? Well, I saying, still oh, get letters God. from people. I get letters from. Uh, it was sort of it was called Team Rodent. How Disney devours the world. I mean, it was it was quite a few years ago, but it was just and it was sort of focused on you know Disney's in, in, engulfing Florida, but also just the whole at that time the whole Disney culture. And Then they were they were redoing Times Square at the time, which I always found ironic um, for you know had Lion King going in Times Square where where all the uh, <laughs> the bad stuff used to happen, but. But it was just about the culture, and, 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 and I'll just one story. There was, you know, it was a bit of a rant. They come to me. Um, Random House was doing a series of, of short books, uh, longer than essays but shorter than an average nonfiction, just on one subject. They had they had Jimmy Carter doing something. They had I forget who all these distinguished people doing these things, and then they asked me, and I thought, well, this is a mistake. And they said, well, "Aren't you?" <laughs> they said, "Aren't you?" Aren't you? Aren't you mad enough about anything to 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 write? I said, "Well, sure. I, I said I could probably do twenty five thousand thirty words on Disney if you wanted." To. <laughs> you know, I mean, just the, the, the transformation of Florida I and mean, and and what's happening in Central Florida is to And so I did, and I uh, I well, what I did was I and I had some people I knew people who worked there and I had some stuff that I had put in there, but. I heard from so many people who worked there who said, you should have, I wish you got in touch with me. I could have told you a story. I mean, these are people that were like worked in, they were one of the characters, you know, mm-hmm. they had on those cops. Yeah. and they had I some hideous story <laughs> that there was no air conditioning and they, they keel over on main street, you know, with, I mean, I mean, there was just, um, it was, I mean, I wished I had time, had had time to, you know, report it like a real book, but it wasn't meant to it was just sort of screed. But, the people got in touch with me that worked there would just say, you know, of course, you couldn't find the book anywhere. I, they weren't exactly selling it at Cinderella's Castle, <laughs> <laughs> um, So it became sort of a cult thing among among employees that worked there. But, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I remember I had this great memory. I went there one time on a story when I was a very young reporter when I was working in, in Cocoa. Uh, I think right. It was right out of school. There was a paper called Coco Today, which is now Florida today. And that was my first job and I went there and they sent me over to do a feature story about some entertainers. You know, they had they have a lot of big time in it. Disney wasn't that old that time, Disney World. And I they sent me over to interview like Don Knotts from <laughs> you remember from the Andy Griffith <laughs> Show <laughs> yeah. and, and a bunch of other a bunch of other I don't know what they were doing there, but anyway, I said, well why not go over there? But I remember at some point during the day it to rain like hell. you know, and I thought, well, let's, we'll just open umbrellas and the people who are you know, the Disney quote cast members who are escorting the media around oh no, no, we can't be out there. all of a sudden, like a hole in the ground opens up like under a shrub or under a dumpster or something and and, and there's a you go under and this whole, the whole world of Disney is really underground, all the service. You know, the service roads, uh, you know, all the catering, everything is under the Magic Kingdom. And they come up and put everything. So, you know, you don't see any trucks with garbage cans rolling down Main Street. I mean, it's all happening underground. I'd never been on it before. And they said, you got to swear, okay, nobody gets to go here, but it's raining. So, hard and it's lightning. We're bringing you down here. We'll wait till the storm's over. And so, I remember going down there. And and I don't know if it was Mickey or Minnie. I forget which of the rodents' uh, characters. The dude had his hat off. You know, he had his head off. And the rest mm-hmm. of them, and he's, and he's just sitting there, and he looks like anybody, just kind of sitting there, just any work, working guy, just taking a break, and he's sitting there puffing a cigarette, and he's had his <laughs> head under one arm, you know. I thought this is this, I thought this is freaking fantastic. There's Mickey sucking on a Marlboro. Which, you know, which I mean, you're not allowed to do up above ground. You, you can't. They no, can't no, your I'm sure you're yeah. not allowed these days. I'm sure you can't do. it. do But I just thought man, this is just a work and stiff. And what kind of job is that? Running out there and having these kids. Uh, you know. And then I got in. Here's what else I, did. I got into. All the costs. No, I didn't get into. But I at the time they, I did a, a series. Uh, I think for the Herald. Actually, I went over and looked at all the litigation against Disney because they get sued all the time. Uh, the, uh, you know, tourists <laughs> go there. Find all kinds of reasons to Disney, and they have the best lawyers in Orlando, obviously. And sure, but there were some hilarious I mean, I, I have to say, some hilarious lawsuits. And so, I, I got into that a little bit. And one of the characters was Goofy, or one of that's the other dog Pluto, he'd just been having a bad day. And this was a great lawsuit. And so, they're going to Main Street Parade at night, and then some poor kid, some kid comes out and keeps yanking on his tail, keeps darting out of the crowd, yanking on his tail. and and the poor, the poor dude just can't stand it anymore. You know, he's trying to be cheerful and he's in his Pluto or whatever. And he turns around and just drop kicks the little sucker about three rows in. You know, they settled that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, the, kid, you, the kid wasn't hurt. But you yeah, I mean, I have, I have nothing but empathy for the, for the character, you know, that was one they didn't. That one did go to trial. <laughs>
0: well, of course, there was that that terrible story of the the little boy who was swimming in one of the ponds and was bitten, oh, was killed
1: idiotic. by an alligator, right? Yeah,
0: that yeah. Was, and yeah. then they did put out a warning sign.
1: Then, see, but that's part of what that, that book was about. Uh, Team Roden is about is that is that nature and Disney are not hand in hand. I mean, they one of the no. first things they did was scrape the lakes and put in white sand so the water would be bluer when they when they bought a lot of their property. They literally. The tannic yeah. water, the natural tannic water of Florida, which all of us who grew up here knew, was not looking good on the promotional brochure. <laughs> so they yeah. actually they actually redid the bottoms of the water. Nature never measured up, never. And so yeah. this was a classic thing of some lawyer somewhere said, oh, God, don't put up alligator signs. you scare people off. Something, that decision was made. And this poor child, this poor kid, I remember that story vividly. Uh, uh, wasn't I mean, he, that should never have happened. That horrible, horrible incident should never have happened. And and uh, and then you're right. After the child dies, then all of a sudden they put up signs that have an actual alligator on them or use the word alligator. Um, the, 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 I loved it because for a while I said, uh, you know, uh, it was like, uh, watch out for local wildlife. You see these signs. That's another way of saying Big it. yeah. gators okay uh, but they wouldn't that was their mentality uh that, that and it existed you know it, it just permeated the culture was that uh, you know nature yeah forget about nature we're disney we can handle it and, and we don't need to scare people well you're in florida folks and and uh you know you're talking about a prehistoric animal he can't read he's gonna be in the <laughs> no i mean it's just it's just hideous but uh, enough about
0: donald trump
1: yeah <laughs> Now, oh you, now you God. spoofed you spoofed theme parks with a native tongue. That's also the one where you introduced Skink, right? Well, he he actually appeared. A skink actually, who appears in the new book, um, first appeared in a novel called Double Whammy, which uh, he was ah, supposed that's to right, be just sort of a walk-on. Yep. Yeah, which was that was the one about the corruption in the, the professional bass fishing mm-hmm. circuit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was. Territory I still have to myself in, a, in the literary world. Um, <laughs> congratulations on that. Yeah. What possessed you to think? Okay, I think a great character is going to be a former governor who's gone feral. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: tell you, I tell
1: you the truth. I'll tell you the truth is that that when I was working on that book, I just I, there was a. The main character was going into a certain place. I needed a hermit guy. I just needed a hermit dude for a couple of chapters, and so I and I uh, I invented him. And then I then I, when I'm thinking of what the backstory should be, I thought, well, why not make him a, a governor? A, a governor of Florida who was actually honest. Uh, he was a Vietnam War hero. He got persuaded to run for office. He gets to Tallahassee, and he goes stark raving mad within a few months because the place is so crooked and there were so many deals that. They were making it. He just couldn't take it. So he kind of runs, rips off his clothes and runs screaming naked out of the Capitol. I think that's a normal reaction. Yeah. In Tallahassee. <laughs> so I like like um,
0: did,
1: did you think he'd show up again in Brother uh, You in know, novels? this is one of the selfish pleasures about writing. I didn't when I started that. I mean, I literally thought about three or four chapters with him and then he started he just surprised me. He started saying and doing things that I found very interesting and funny, and I and I started sort of vicariously thinking, well, what else can he get away with? And so by the end of Double Whammy, he was almost the moral compass of that strange novel. He 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 almost become the you know the spiritual center of it. And so yeah, after that, I thought, you know, I'm going to bring him back eventually. I didn't know when, and I don't ever know when he sort of pops in every couple novels if this... You know if, if it's right, I, I just don't ever know like in this case, squeeze me, I had you know these Pythons, which of course we're dealing with in Florida and it's sort of an Everglades scenario and it seemed like that would be perfect if you if, if you gotta have you know he seemed to be a perfect fit for what needed to happen there to bring skink back. but I at the time I, I sort of invented him, no man he was supposed to be just around a cameo for a couple of chapters and that's it. and then and I've had other characters that they surprise you? And all of a sudden, they become something larger than you you hoped. And then I've had characters that didn't work out, just you know, disappoint me, and you know got rid of them or took them out of the book. Chemo, I think, is your most famous villain. The guy, <laughs> the guy with the <laughs> weed whacker is for an arm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I
1: kind of like him. Yeah, yeah. He he had a and he lost his arm to a barracuda. There, there was a case I knew. Well, I mean, I've known several cases where people accident. And barracuda don't eat people, but they've had you know they're wearing a lot of jewelry, and they they get bit, and they've lost part of a hand or a hand or something. So he gets, he loses his hand down in Stiltsville chemo, loses part of his arm and to a big barracuda down in Biscayne Bay. And I, yeah, that was sick. I, I mean, I'm not well, I'm not a well person to think about, but I, I couldn't figure I just didn't want him to have a regular prosthetic. You know, this was in a book called Skin Skin Tight that I did. I thought this guy is too good for not too good, but he's—he, you know, he is a villain. He's kind of a bad guy, but, but he's had a tough life. There's a reason he's a bad guy. But I thought, well, you know, he's not going to go get a regular prosthetic. He's going to get something. He was a bouncer at a club, <laughs> at, a, at a club on South Beach, even before South Beach. Before Don Johnson got to South Beach, and but you know he worked the mosh pit. And he, I said, well, there's a guy that needs more than a regular prosthetic. A, a weed whacker would work great <laughs> in a club like that. It would calm everybody down. I went to a I went to a plastic surgeon, a friend of mine. And I said, Jerry, how? I'm not saying I'm. this is plausible. I want to know if it's possible. If I wanted to get a, a weed whacker attached to my arm, I mean, if I <laughs> lost my arm, could you do it? And how would you do it surgically? And so he showed me, went through it. We had the whole battery pack thing. I mean, it, it, you can do it, by the way. It can be done. So that's all I needed to hear. I said, that's great. That's where we're going with this.
0: Maybe that can be our Florida survival tip of the week, Craig. If you're barracuda yeah. fishing, leave the chains and the bracelets and the the, the Rolex uh, behind on shore.
1: That's right. Uh, now you've had you've had a he's one of a couple of recurring characters you've had. The other one being your uh, your policeman turned restaurant health inspector in the Keys, and then Mick Stranahan, the former yeah. state attorney's yeah. office investigator, who's in Skin Tight, and then um, was it Skinny Dip? He was in Skinny also? Dip. Yeah. I like is, him, is there, too. I don't... It, yeah. Do these guys all exist in sort of an extended Carl Hyacinth universe, <laughs> like the Marvel... I know. Like you some know Marvel You never know how how it's going to feel to bring a character back. I mean, I don't set out that... With Yancey, I did two books in a row with him. I did, you know, Bad Monkey and Razor. But I just liked him, and I liked the key. And I lived down there uh, for some time. And, I mean, I liked this, the setting. Tranahan, it was many years between the books, between Skin Tight and... Skinny dip, but I and I don't know what possessed me. I just sometimes you miss a character and you you forget how much fun they were or what the possibilities. I think I think when I do that is when I think I I don't think I've maxed out the possibilities for that character. That, there, that this might be a nice storyline or a nice you know setting for for him or her to come back. I mean the the, the character in this new book, Angie, I, I liked her tremendously, and you know, she's one of these wildlife removal critter removal experts which you have all over florida you see their trucks you know if you get a a raccoon in the family Mm -hmm. room uh all these people come out and they remove it and and i thought well that that'd be a cool job you know to have as a character i mean to have as a role in the book but i liked her a lot and maybe someday she comes back i don't know you know you get i just i don't have any plan that's the deal i mean a lot of writers have like plans like after this book, I'm doing this book. I'm doing this series. Or I have zero plans. I, I alternate between the grown. I don't. I, I alternate between the grown-up novels and then the novels I do for kids. So I'm, I'll start one of those soon for for kids now because I, I finished this. This one I just wrote up. I wrote all the way through the beginning. of The pandemic. I mean, the, the turnaround on this squeeze me was very tight because they wanted to get it out. Um, uh, before the election. And, and uh, and so I, I never worked on that kind of a fast turn. Usually it's nine months or even a year from the time you you finish until the time an actual book is, you know, the book mm-hmm. actually shows up in a box on your doorstep. This, this turn was very fast. So I'm still, I'm not, I have no great rush to start anything new, but I, you know, I mean, last night I had an event with 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 jim patterson a virtual and i was just joking with him in the course of the the one hour we spent together he probably did already he was probably the book had come out while we were talking (laughs) (laughs) um but i can't work like that i'm just i I can't i i just did not that fast
0: the new novel is squeeze me carl Hyacin is the author you can find it everywhere and go ahead and do that you will enjoy it and go through the back catalog as well thank you so much for all the time you've given us today craig wrap it up
1: before we go real quickly what kind of reaction do you get to your kids books like hoot that's just been wonderful they that the kids make you believe that there's hope that's the one reason i kept doing it i mean the letters i get i get tons of letters they actually sit down and write letters and they teach the books and a lot of Classes, which I I understand might be terrifying at some level, but I get letters <laughs> from all over, I get letters from all over the country. kids are terrific. They're they're blunt, by the way. <laughs> if they don't <laughs> like something, they let you know. But it, it's been they're they're so connected to nature. It's like well, Craig, well, you appreciate this from your own writing when you see what a kid's face is like the first time he sees the Everglades, the first time he's out on Tampa Bay. Or you just they just they're so connected inherently to nature that they. They dig the books, and um, that's been a great thrill for me. And, uh, um, you know, it just—and by the way, anytime you can see it, you see a kid who's actually opening a book and not looking at his iPhone, it's some sort of victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True, very true. Carl, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. All right, you guys. Thanks a lot. When
0: did you start thinking you wanted to be a writer, Craig?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I When I was a kid. Um, my mom— Worked part time, and she had a portable typewriter. And so, at some point, I graduated from uh, drawing pictures in crayon to writing made-up stories on this portable typewriter that she let me use. And of course, the stories were all about my vicarious adventures—you know, as a winning pitcher in the World <laughs> Series or a fighter pilot, or you know, something like that. Yeah. And, but but like I was talking with Carl about, I, you know, I also grew up in this sort of southern storytelling tradition. My my dad uh, was a big uh, fisherman and uh, bird hunter, and we would get together with his fishing buddies or his hunting buddies, and they would, as Dad liked to say, everybody had to tell a story, mm-hmm. and most of them were lies, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. and, and there'd be jokes and, and tales and efforts to one-up each other with funny comments, and, uh, uh, and some of the, if, you, if you made everybody laugh, that story would then be told again sometime later, And so I kind of grew up with that as a way of making sense of the world, too. And so, you know, you put those two things together, and and then in high school, I wound up on the school yearbook staff, and that was kind of my first, you know, real writing gig of trying to make sense of of high school, which, God help us, if (laughs) if you have to do that. Um, So that's, I mean, that's kind of where that came from, is I was an only child, and I made up stories, and because that was the the way I, I learned that. You do. You make up stories and you tell them and sometimes they make people laugh.
0: Welcome to Florida.